I'm absolutely delighted to have Drew O'Sullivan on the podcast this week. Drew is well known in the startup ecosystem in Ireland and in Europe. He's achieved many things throughout his career, but summarizes his main work mainly as investor, advisor and mentor. Currently, Drew is working with Intertrade Ireland and also the European Engine Fund slash European Investment Bank. If you know Drew, I think you will know that you will get a well-informed and experienced opinion. And that's what you get here. As he says himself, he can be a little bit blunt, but that makes for interesting listening. We three, cover three main startup topics. The first is company valuation. The second is what makes startup teams work. And Drew has some very interesting thoughts on this. The third is a topic that is rarely well thought through, and that is product or service pricing in the market as a startup. And that's one of my pet topics myself. I found it very, very interesting. I found overall that Drew's insights are often against the current conventional wisdom, and that makes them much more interesting. You'll have to forgive two things on the podcast. One is my chesty voice, and the second is the interruption by my dog, but I left that in as I thought it was somewhat amusing. Otherwise, this is a great podcast covering important topics for startup companies, covering investment, teams, and how to price your products, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a tough competitive business to drive telecom sales. But now there is a new channel that is making all the difference for innovative companies. That's the Digital Sales Channel. At Netzer, we are the leading digital sales channel provider for telecoms companies. Our customers can testify to our ability to listen and implement solutions that work for them. If you are a mobile operator, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, We'd like to understand your business issues and work with you to drive your sales. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com and we can talk. It's a, it's a lovely Monday morning here, and I'm talking to a man I've known for a long time, Drew O'Sullivan. And hello, Drew. How are you doing? Hi, Pat. How are you? And we were talking there. Drew is well known in the startup ecosystem in Ireland and internationally. He's done many things, and he, he I was trying to describe what does Drew do, and, and Drew came up with a couple of, cu- couple of suggestions. So, Drew, maybe you'll explain what your roles, roles are. Okay, I might work out what I do as I describe them myself. Um, so I've been doing something in the f- startup kind of landscape in Ireland for 20 years or, or more. So I've worked at some stage in corporate finance, in, uh, in venture capital. Um, I've won several kinds of, I'm going to call them accelerator, but startup type programs with us training, mentoring, funding. So uh, sometimes take equity, sometimes we didn't. Um, mainly they were publicly funded, but I also worked on privately funded one. And more recently, I've got uh, two main hats I did wear. One, I work as the equity advisor with Intertrade Ireland. So I've been doing that for seven or eight years. And I meet companies on a one-to-one basis and I give them feedback on their business plans and their capital raising plans. Um, and I do meet around 150 companies a year doing that. 
And on top of that, I'd meet another 24 who are in the seed corn finals. And I also do workshops and things like that with Intertrade. So I call that kind of an educational remit um, and trying to help and improve the kind of knowledge that's out there um, around startup fundraising. And that's north and south to do with companies there. And the other hat I'd wear is the European Angel Fund. And that is a fund set up by the European Investment Fund around Europe. And they have European Angel Funds in several countries, in Germany, in Finland, in Spain, and others elsewhere, Austria. And in Ireland, it's a 40 million fund. Half the money is actually Enterprise Ireland, half is EIF. And the idea is we find uh, angels on the ground who have really good investment track record and like our terms and conditions, and we enter a long-term co-investment agreement with them. So every time they, if they've signed an agreement with us, they put in a euro or 100 euros, 100,000 euro into a company, EIF or EAF, excuse me, will automatically put 100 grand or match it into the company on the exact same terms and conditions as the angel. And the benefit to the angel, they double up the money, but they get a 20% profit share on a deal-by-deal basis, which is... Uh, it's 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 a nice cream. It's a, it's attractive. So um, they're the they're the two main hats I wear at the moment. I've also done in the last year or two. I've worked. Uh, I've gone. Um, the I've been in the jury panel for the European Innovation Council. So they are the the new Horizon 2020 or Horizon Europe. Uh, so where companies can get between two and a half to two up to two and a half million grant, fifteen million in equity, and and so that the, their process is a lot of application work and filtering and. And, and at the end of it, there's a jury decision maker, decision making jury panel of about six people. And I, um, they have multiple juries and I've sat on that jury for. Right, uh, right. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, long, that that's covers a lot. So I've been investor, advisor, mentor. I've seen lots of both sides. I've seen lots of. I think it's the interesting thing, you know, apart from that sort of, um, my um, Drew, my dog is is uh, someone's annoying her. I just have to go. I'm just going to leave this wrong. Okay? Yeah, it's all right. Sorry about that. <laughs> my my Chinese neighbours have a garden, and they bring various things. I don't know what half them are to be honest. But anyway, so every every couple of days they drop over some food for me. So. The dog, for some reason, he just started barking. But there you go. Uh, anyway, okay. No, so let me let me get back into the, th- the stream. Of it. Okay. Okay. So Drew, that's really fascinating. And one of the things that you know I find amazing is you know you meet 150 companies a year, and a guy comes in, a woman, a team, and they talk about their company. I mean, do you get an instinct in the first five minutes that yeah, this is a goer or Nah, this is not going to go. And how do you do? You tell them that you know, um, or do you do you hold do you hold back judgment? What's your your general approach? So my approach is um, as best I can, right? Um, and and I don't get this right all the time. Is to assume I don't know if it'll be an absolute winner or not. Um, number one. Number two. I um, while I work in the startup funding space, I'm not a true believer that only funded startups are the only way that people should go so i also look and see whether uh when people have something they gotta go can i get money and they gotta go well maybe you've got an interesting business here but you've a lot to prove and you could prove it to try and get money or maybe the money is secondary could you prove amongst other things there's a market you can make it the customers can engage can you get to revenue without third-party capital so anyway you could grow without third-party capital so try and take some of the third-party capital conversation park it to one side which sounds odd 
because I'm there meant to be dealing with people who are looking to raise money. And the reason, so I try and um, make sure it's a constructive hour in 15 minutes. Um, I am very conscious that I have, I am not brilliant picking winners. I'm probably, this sounds odd, better at knowing who's not going to make it than necessarily knowing who's going to make it. It's, it's, the latter is a hard thing and, and VC is really good. VCs are really good at that. I'm not in VC now and still, I don't want to be in VC because I'm not particularly good at picking hardcore winners. I know that. So what I'm trying to do is be useful and helpful. So I'll tone, tone it and react, kind of go, what's the most practical, useful thing I can do for these people this hour and 15 minutes, number one. Number two, um, if they look to me like, and this is where I do have experience, like the kind of thing that VCs are likely to want to back, mm-hmm. if somebody does the diligence and finds out, yeah, they've got their, their good energy, they seem to have good traction, good domain knowledge, they seem to have a good idea what the future will hold. They seem to be a good place for somebody to deploy capital for 12 or 18 months. Then I might kind of go, right, here's who you need to talk to, and I can affect an introduction, or here's the extra bits you need to do. Go go run on that. But sometimes I am trying to make sure people are not thinking that the only option is fundraise. Um, if you're yeah, that's that's a really interesting idea, <clears throat> Drew, because my own experience is this, is that there, you know, you, there's a huge celebration of round raising and, you know, X got 10 million or whatever. <clears throat> Down the road, um, unless your exit's well over 10 million, guess what? You know, you're not going to get a lot out of it. So th- it's a strange focus. I think there's as much time and effort required to get a customer as to get the fundraising. And if you get a customer, that's even though the amount of money might be very good, the, the impact on your valuations is tremendous. So, the, uh, it, it, well, I'm not, sure if, I'm not sure it has a huge impact on your valuation, actually. I, I think uh, valuation is determined more by the uh, available capital. I don't think there's a natural matrix that says, pre-having a customer, you're worth, imagine you're raising a seed round of uh, half a million. You don't have a customer, you're worth a million and a half. You do have a customer, you're worth three million pre. I don't think there's a natural matrix for that. I think um, raising money valuations are a function of geography and the geography of where the, so the capital is often pretty local, particularly for seed. So um, so seed being I'm under one million in turnover, or it could be a lot, it could be zero, or I have a hundredth grand, but I'm under one million in turnover, annual recurring revenue, whatever you want to call it, and I'm raising probably usually half a million to two million, right? Mm-hmm. And that seed round is a very different seed round if you do it in Belfast versus Dublin versus London versus New York versus West Coast of the state. Mm, that is, that's really interesting too. So are you saying that the, if there's more available money, you'll get a higher valuation? So maybe it's basic supply and demand, but is, that's what you're saying, is it? Almost. I'm saying that where there's a higher supply of money, there is still huge competition to get in there. And get it, but if you can get it, you'll probably get one a larger seed round at a better valuation. Right, and you don't. I, you see, I'm not sure I agree with you about the customer thing, um, because it was, if you have a customer, like you've already proven, you have a there's a market. Okay, it might be a big market. It might be a big market. Who knows? But I, also, you're delivering. You know, you're, you've got the bones of the company there. Uh, absolutely, but there's if there's evidence that historically you could deliver, and if there's evidence that historically you understand the market. And you did extraordinarily well in both those things and you being a team, then I might want to give you all the money I can, regardless of what's being built yet. Okay. So, so let's just look at that for a second again. So the teams, 
like I do think you're very honest about you know your evaluation of a team, whether it be successful or not. And I actually um would I would be exactly like you. I would be often thinking, you know, that'll never work. And then a few years later, you see, well, that actually did work, and I was wrong. But I do see teams that you go like, no, nah, no way in hell. That is so far out. Now maybe they're exploring. You know, it's a new market. You know, but again. Some of it is is this. When I was always a product manager, I had this rule of thumb, which was that 90% of the products I worked on would fail. So it was very easy to be a product manager by just saying that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. But you always miss that 10%, which is the reason you're you're there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I just find that really an honest assessment and also pragmatic. So um what's is there two three things in a team that you'd look for that would make them successful? Uh, so, so something that was current to me recently that I didn't like, I heard, I heard it in an angel discussion recently, and people said, you want the entrepreneurs to be coachable. And I, I kind of didn't like it because I, 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 I like the idea of coaching, but I don't like the idea that I don't know if I want to invest in somebody who's not coachable because it nearly sounds like, it, it, it's usually meant not in the sense of we'll all learn together. It's almost always meant in the sense of well, you're taking my money. You better listen, sunshine. <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 I kind of, I, I, I want them to be uh, able to listen, uh, able to take on points and, and give it back. And at the same time, not burn bridges and how they do that. Mm -hmm. So strong. I, I can't remember. There's a great phrase about that, uh, you know, being, it, being quick to hold to change your mind if you it, when the facts declare it, but also being very good at defending your opinion mm -hmm. at any given time. Right? So I can't remember. There's a great phrase for it. So they need to have the the smarts to be able to kind of fight their corner without at the same time actually fighting the person they're they're debating or and you're kind of going right. So because they'll have smart people around them and you just it's less the coachable, just they're capable of of being being smart. Um, very hungry to go at particular pace. Um, so pace driven mm -hmm. and so in fairness a lot of the people i would meet they kind of go i want to raise money and they kind of go right if i told you the first thing you're missing is this sense of urgency that you know uh, you investing your time with me property investing your time your fundraise properly you do know in seed funds there's like three four five you know max in ireland you could ever talk to i can mm -hmm. tell you where two or three i'm probably going to talk to you because you don't fit this criteria so if you're really looking to do a seed round um, are you going to take this kind of urgency really quickly and go, right, I need to talk to 40 guys in the UK? Yeah. You know, yeah. Are you prepared to kind of execute very quickly? That's only on a fundraiser. It's not product and other things. But that's speed of execution. So, um, so, 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 so a toleration of the ambiguity, being, being able to argue a corner in, in, in mm -hmm. a way that you're not burning bridges. Uh, uh, and sometimes that's because I can be very blunt in the air and air in 15. I can, right. I can sometimes I've gone over the line actually in the bluntness. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, the leader in digital sales channels for telecoms. Thank you for listening to our amazing innovators tell their stories. But I try and manage it, but it has happened. When you try and go, right, we've now in 15 minutes, I'll tell you what I think. And it's trying as little as possible to tell them whether the proposition is good or not. And more, as much as possible to kind of say, this is where you've way bigger holes as an audience who's thinking of investing in you will see these holes. Yeah, so, yeah. No, that, that's very really good. That was the argument thing. The, t the, the second mm. thing was the, the urgency, the, 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 the sense of urgency. And, yeah. and, and, the and the third thing is um, 
you know, a sense that they're, 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 they're hunting out information through their network. Mm-hmm. And they're proactively building their network or they're proactively, whether they're looking for stuff from me or looking for stuff from them, this proactivity of trying to hunt through their network. I'm trying yeah. to say, right, we are a two or three person team. We're here at the edge of, of Western Europe. What are we doing to kind of punch way above our weight? Yeah. And, and um, yeah. That, that, that's actually, no, first of all, Drew, look, that, that's really interesting that, that you, you picked on those. So they're beyond things like the, you know the 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 management guy, the uh, sales guy, and the the technical guy in the team. It's sort of a different a different angle. It's a sense of the dynamic of the team, the curiosity of the team, and the last one you described is sort of interesting because that's that goes to the introvert extrovert thing. I think a little bit, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of I, I I don't fully buy into introvert extrovert. I think everyone's an omnivert. You can move up and down a little bit as uh, on the scales. But there is a lot of, um, in, in teams, there's often a lot of interest in looking in and not looking out, I, I find. Um, I, I kind of, I'm not sure. I, I think the, so you, 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 two kinds of things in teams. There's this great team where it seems kind of democratic, and then you've got the great leader and the other people supporting it. The great leader might be outward looking. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or able to do the omniversion thing and the, and the other people around but I, I don't know I, I'm going to say it's beyond my beyond, <laughs> my, uh, beyond my abilities I guess I'm trying to take one of the curious things about team is it always sounds like a hugger mugger thing we're all in it together and all that and read a, a super article recently kind of saying actually almost always you got one person mm-hmm. and one person is driving forward and whatever it is about all the team and we're all doing this together and we couldn't achieve this as a team you know uh, La Capitan or El Capitan, whatever, she or he, there's somebody at the front and mm-hmm. they're driving it. Yeah, yeah. And I think if that person at the front is inward looking... You, That's you know, the way it is. Uh, That's you, the way that you, you, is. You're, you're going to have an issue. I think you're going to have an issue. Yeah. Okay, okay. That's, that's really brilliant, Drew. No, thanks for that. Well, when we were talking uh, before uh, planning this, we had a really interesting conversation about pricing. And <laughs> you, you thought that uh, I'll let you explain yourself in a second, but you thought this was an undervalued, shall we say, that's a bit of a pun there, I guess. It's something that isn't focused enough on. Um, maybe if you could explain that. So I'm going to give a broader context in the answer. Sure. Fundraising is the filter through how I've earned my living for many years, and I'm not a true believer that that is where the only interesting entrepreneurs are going to be found or that the fundamental thing that entrepreneurs should be trying to do is raise money, Okay. But the more fundamental thing for a successful business is, yeah, can it grow? What do you want to grow? You want to grow revenue, et cetera. But broadly, people would like to grow the value of their business, right? Whether they want to sell out or whether they want to conquer the world. They want to... But values of businesses, when you look at publicly quoted companies, are the shorthand is usually a multiple of their profits. Mm-hmm. And from a maths basis, from a looking at a P&L one of the number one simple, straightforward ways to increase your profit is to increase your revenue line. Yeah, yeah. And to increase your revenue line is a function of volume by by price, right? And Mm -hmm. the volume might be units, licenses, whatever, customers. And personally, I like to think of P&L when I'm dealing with startups as customers because I get confused if somebody's like selling a million licenses and you kind of go, oh, million to one customer or a million customers having one license. Mm -hmm. And often something in between so pricing though price if you can improve your price you have a significant impact on the profitability of the business and you can have significant impact into your ability to uh, or the valuation of the business and i 
I'm coming across people all the time in early stage land, and, I, I, and I, my impression is it's true all the way through to, to medium companies as well. And there was a pricing survey done with Enterprise Ireland clients very recently, actually, by a UK firm. And, and price is really not understood as to why it's valuable and important, even at the early stage, let alone later stage. But at the early stage, price impacts. So if I think I'm going to have a million customers and they pay me $500 each, that's a 500 million, or that I think that's the market size. That's a 500 yeah. million market size. Yeah. However, I haven't so- spoken to any customers yet. I've priced myself at $500 because that seems to be 10% less than the nearest available competitor. I go into the market, use my product, discover it ha- provides huge value to the customers and I can actually charge them 1500 each. My market, my market size, I might only have five customers, but mm-hmm. now I might be able to extrapolate there's a market size of one and a half billion. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that changes the game plan for how big the company could get, its attractiveness for investors, lots of other stuff. So the pricing impacts market sizing. It impacts your, your, your potential exit. Mm-hmm. And it impacts the decision-making process for VCs at the start because the pricing is also another way of talking about pricing is your life size of your gross margin. So I meet lots of companies that kind of go, we're doing this for great, great, great. nobody else has done it in the world, and we are 51% growth profit margin or 45% growth profit margin. And I'll be fairly blunt and say, there's a lot of investors will stop the conversation there. So it could be in your sector that's brilliant, and it could be in your sector. You know, there's other arguments as to why not to worry. We have a high CAC to LTV. Don't worry. It'll be fantastic. It costs us almost nothing to acquire a customer. So we're going to make loads of, you know, real money profit. So don't worry about the percentage per customer, but it, you end up coming back to price and growth profit margin, actually it drives some of the investor decision-making. And the more that's understood by startups, the better, because there are numbers that people make decisions very early on, whether they're going to engage or not in a business. And right, the right. Pro- level of intelligence that people put into, and planning and thought, sorry, that people put into what their pricing level is and why, is mad. Yeah. So Peter Peel wrote a book called From Zero to One a few a couple of years ago. And he made this argument. He said, well, he cut it. It was lectures. Like another guy called Blake something, guy had a brilliant name, Blake Masters or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> the two of them put, put it together in a book, but it was a core Peter Thiel's content. And um, he said, you know, and a startup should try and be a monopoly for particular initial segments it's going after. It should try and have a sustainable competitive advantage. And almost all startups at some stage, somebody goes, what's your sustainable competitive advantage? Well, if you have one, you're a monopoly. Right. right. Doesn't sound super warm and cuddly and start to be <laughs> hugger mugger stuff, but yeah, you've got to be a monopoly, not for all customers, but particular segment. Mm-hmm. And amongst other things, that becomes attractive to acquirers. It allows you to get a dominant position in one kind of the first bowling pin before you knock out the next bowling pins, all this stuff. But it also gives you huge pricing power. Mm-hmm. And I am meeting largely a lot of knowledge based businesses that are claiming to be unique, one of the best in the world, et cetera. They found hopefully a sweet spot customer that almost looks and says, I don't really see another available alternative bar, you guys. And you got to go. So as a result, you can charge shitloads. You can charge a lot. They're getting a huge amount of value, so you can charge a lot. And, and that confidence to kind of question whether they're charging enough, question whether they could be 2x or 3x higher because it's hugely valuable to the customer base. And the final bit I'll say, this, sorry, Pat, because I'm going on a bit of a rant. Final no, 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 go, it, go, go. The amount of small companies that are dealing with medium to large companies, so mm-hmm. small Irish tech companies, totally punched above their weight, doing business with a large company, and they're sweating price. And you kind of go, the lady or the guy across the table from you who's working in that large company, their job 
is on the line, their career is on the line, if they've made a mistake working with you, this ain't a pricing decision, buddy. They are not here because they're kind of shaving corners. They are here because they have some big, big issue. Sure. This lucky Irish startup is the only way they're going to be able to solve it. Well, there is a lot of pricing room, inelasticity, whatever word you want to call it. Not for all startups. So what I'm saying is very generalized and might, might be particularly for B2B and lots of people could pick holes in it. I don't mind. Just think about it. So in the in yeah. the clinics in our workshops, I want people to put a bit more thought. We go through a couple of examples. I've got to say, here's a, here's a couple of loss-making companies, but here's a reason. This One of them has an 80% gross profit margin. The other is 50%. But all things being equal, everything else is the same as them. But an acquirer will pay multiple times more for the 80%. Yeah, no, that, no, it's really because it has a knock on effect to the acquirer's business model where they can hit scale. Yeah, no, I let I, I wanted to hear that, um, Drew. I don't want to just spell it out because I think it's really interesting. It's a whole area that isn't thought through. Like myself, when I go into a new market, um, I was thinking, myself, how do I price it? Well, usually there is a particular price of an indicative product, so we know what that is. And then I do a cost plus for me. What does it cost for me to deliver? And then I think about, you know, if someone's buying off me a new entrance to the market, there's got to be like, um, what's, what am I saving them? You know, the, what is the value I bring to the table? And that yeah. last one is often quite uh, dramatic. Whereas if you do cost plus, it's your business looks pretty miserable, to be honest, generally speaking. Um, so it's, it's really, and you work out in there, you know, what is the price? And don't be too shy because if you're too high, you can always come down. If you're too low, it's very hard to go back up. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I, I mean, I'll just give one product. I'm, I'm not going to give too much details. There's one product I am aware of. If you do it, if you look at the, the um, cost of similar products in the market, it's okay. You know, it's okay. But if you focus on a particular segment and add in some stuff relative to that segment, um, it's got like a 90% margin over the over the current way of doing things. In other words, it's 10, it's 10% of the cost of the current way of doing things, if you look at in that way. And it's, that's exactly what you're talking about with teal and so on. It's like you try and get to be a monopoly in that segment where you bring particular value that makes yeah. you appealing. You know? So anyway, listen so to it. In the, Sorry, in the early, yeah, in the early, when I'm meeting, so I'm meeting people in the clinics who are largely looking to raise seed, seed plus or series A. Mm. And I'd say seed is the people trying to raise their first seed. Let's call it 50% of who I meet. Seed plus, this isn't scientific, top of my head. Seed plus 35%, series A, 15% of who I'd meet out of that pool. Um, and what I say to the seed and series A guys, uh, sorry, seed and seed plus guys in particular is the first customers you get um, so they kind of go, look, I've got this, I've got customers, I've got revenue, and said our users, and I said, right, the most useful thing for those that you have with those guys is an opportunity to get intelligence from them, mm -hmm. to work out, get your case studies, to try and find out what the before and after situation did they get value out of the product? Will they share the economic value? Don't worry, you'll guarantee they can have the product for a bar, a, a fraction for whatever for years. It's more can they partner with you to kind of work out what was it that. And the way I put it is if, if it's B2B and you, you're, you're going to sell this customer 100 units and the first one or two units were pilot, what was it that the guy or the lady, the other side of the table, was going to take to their CFO and say, this is why we should buy 98 more of these. Here's mm. the economic case for it. Can you get visibility of that? Can you help them frame that, structure it? 
so that you can take that on to your later customers. And now you have an idea. And now, again, into the segmentation where it's going to be of most value. And, and the funny thing is, in a lot of presentations, they start with a big problem statement. And often they have it in the problem statement, stuff that gives measurably crap in the current situation okay. and they're going to change it then you move on i had one one company recently that raised a million nearly not quite but nearly and they said we're going to we need more money we're going to go for series a i said great we have some customers we have some traction i said i love the problem statement it's in your business plan and your deck this is a company actually has had a business plan and was raising series a which is unusual and, okay. and I was going, that's great that's great so tell me how you get on those kind of metrics in your problem statement we haven't said so so you haven't proven the thing works well it's great engagement with our product and the <laughs> pipeline. I said, kind of, so you, basically you've got a kind of nice to have pretty thing here. Yeah. May or may not actually deliver the value. And if it did, you could, you'd have an idea how much you could charge. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No. I would, with, with, with that particular company, I was a, a bit blunt, not okay. it won't succeed, but, I don't think anybody's going to give you a million or a couple of million, even if you had nice traction on the revenue thing without the kind of understanding that there's a logic behind why they're blind, buying from you and you've been able to prove the value you're given. Yeah, no, no, that, that's that's brilliant, uh, Drew. Listen, it'd be brilliant to have me on the podcast. And I think people are going to find this really interesting. Um, as you know, in this podcast, uh, people play the, the guest nominates the play out song. So what do you have in mind? I was thinking about this. Um, <laughs> this is the part everyone loves. <laughs> Singularity by John Hopkins. Oh, I don't know that. Is that uh, what is that? It is uh, one of those. I listen to kind of I don't know cinema landscape type background music. So he, he's sort of in that space, and it's digital. I don't know new okay. something anyway. I'm not sure what to call it. I like it. it's digital. Enjoy. <laughs> I hope you like it, Pat. Coming up now. <laughs> thanks, Drew. Really... Mind yourself. Take care. All right. Thanks, Drew.